What's one of the key words of our age? I would say it's diversity. Hi, this is Gary Zacharias with The Apologist Bookshelf. I want to talk about a book today that focuses on diversity. It's called The Heresy of Orthodoxy by Kostenberger and Kruger. And the subtitle is How Contemporary Culture's Fascination with Diversity Has Reshaped Our Understanding of Early Christianity. So um, I guess it's almost easier just to tell you what it says in the foreword because it gives you a good idea of what's going on here. Uh, this It says there's a contemporary battle to recast the origins of the New Testament and early Christianity. So what are they talking about here? Well, they said that the title of their book, The Heresy of Orthodoxy, it's not just trying to be a catchy title to get people to buy the book. It said it captures the spirit of the age. And it says it's engulfing the Christian faith in a new embrace. And the idea is there's a challenge right now. And they say people like Walter Bauer and Bart Ehrman are arguing that contemporary diversity is good and historic Christianity is too narrow. But they're going beyond that. They're saying that the very notion of orthodoxy is actually a fabrication, that that wasn't there at the time of Jesus in the first Christians. So Bauer and Ehrman, and Bart Ehrman is a huge bestseller these days, they say there's no such thing as Christianity as a singular. There were Christianities in the plural, meaning there were a lot of different beliefs. And then all of them came uh, claimed to be Christian, and they had equal legitimacy. The traditional version of Christianity that we would call today orthodoxy, that's just the form that won out by the church in Rome. It emerged as the ecclesiastical victor in a big power struggle in the second and down to the fourth centuries. And so what Bauer and Ehrman are saying, we've got to get back to that earlier notion of diversity. That's what prevailed in the first century before the Roman church uh, squelched and extinguished that idea. After all, diversity is wonderful. And that's what was there at the beginning. Okay, well, that's what they're talking about. So here's how they divide their book up. The first part is devoted to investigating what they call pluralism and the origins of the New Testament. So they look at that Bauer-Ehrman idea and how it got started, as well as some criticisms of it. And they answer questions like, well, how diverse was early Christianity? And did heresy, in, in fact, go before orthodoxy? The second part of their book is tracing the development of the New Testament canon. That's the part I wanted to look at in my uh, close-up view of one of the chapters. And so the question there is, is this how the canon came to be according to Ehrman and the others? They say diversity was there and the canon later was an imposition by the Roman church. So who got it right? So we'll take a look at that in just a minute. Are there lost Christianities they talk about? Are there lost scriptures? And then part three is changing the story, manuscripts, scribes, and textual transmission. So that's actually a really fascinating topic as well. At least I think it's interesting. Did the ancient scribes and copyists tamper with the text? In other words, do we really have a different text today than what we had, would have had back then? What was, what was there in the first century? I mean, we don't have the autographs. We don't have the original copies of Scripture. They're gone. So then how can Christians today claim they have the inspired word? So that's what's going on here in the book. 
So again, it's called The Heresy of Orthodoxy. So let's look at the chapter that deals with the emerging canon in early Christianity. Now remember what they're going to say, I say they, that's going to be uh, Bauer and Ehrman, they're going to suggest that the origin of the New Testament canon is way toward the end of the 2nd century, end of the 3rd century, and even into the 4th century. That's their argument, the ones that are trying to shake up traditional Christians. In fact, they have a quote from one of these people who back up the Bauer and, and Ehrman point of view. The New Testament canon was essentially created by Irenaeus in the late 2nd century. Elaine Pagels, she has, she's a very popular writer, by the way, so she has a book called Beyond Belief, and she says, yeah, it was Irenaeus. She lays the whole creation of the New Testament at the feet of Irenaeus. Well, that's late in the second century. We're talking the 170s, 180s, 190s. So the purpose of this chapter that I'm going to tell you about is trying to reevaluate the evidence to see how the early Christian canon came about. So remember, the Bauer-Ehrman view is that it's got to be late in the second century. Well, is that true? Is that, is that what happened? Or was there anything earlier to show that a canon was emerging before that? In other words, did the concept of a New Testament canon exist before 150? Or was that an invention of the late second century church? So that's what they're going to attempt to talk about in this chapter. So they start off with early collections of canonical books, early, there's the key word, early, way before 150. So they said, let's take a look at 2 Peter 3.16. Peter says that Paul's letters are scripture, quote, unquote, scripture, on par with the authority of the Old Testament. Now, in that selection there, the passage doesn't refer to just one letter of Paul, but to a collection of his letters. So Peter's really talking about all of his letters and he expects his audience to understand what he's talking about there. So it's a casual reference. Oh, yeah, what Paul's writing, his letters are scripture. Well, it's so casual, it's like Peter expects his readers already knew about that, and they would agree. After all, Peter doesn't put forth any defense. He doesn't argue. He doesn't explain this idea. And since Peter himself called himself an apostle in Second Peter, the implications are pretty obvious. He thinks that this letter should be taken with the same authoritative weight as Paul's. If, if Paul's are already considered scripture by early Christians, then probably other written documents were recognized as such by that time. So any suggestion that, oh, the written New Testament canon came in late in the second century, that's not what's going on here. This is way earlier than that. So it says... Second Peter, some people say, oh, maybe it's actually a little later. Well, if you even put it later, it says that still puts a collection of Paul's epistles being called Scripture at an extremely early date, well before 150 AD. So by the end of the first century, Christians already had a pretty good idea of what the canon was. It was on par with the Old Testament. There's another New Testament passage that these authors look at, 1 Timothy 5.18. Here's what it says. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And it says, that's Paul talking, for the scripture says. In other words, he's saying both of these are scripture, because he says the scripture says. Well, the first citation there was from Deuteronomy, but the second one is Luke 10, 7, and that's Jesus talking. 
So there we go. We've got Paul citing Luke in 1 Timothy. And you can figure out, well, no wonder he cited Luke because Paul Paul spent so much time with them. They're, they're all through the book of Acts. Paul mentions Luke several times. Colossians 4, 2 Timothy 4, Philemon 24. So now let's do a little time uh, chronology here, which they do in the book. They said, all right, let's take the book of Acts. It ends, most people would guess, sometime in the late 60s because they don't mention Paul's death. And he was uh, put to death something like 66 AD or so. So we'll put Acts late 60s. Now Luke is earlier than Acts. So that puts Luke into the early 60s. So here we go. There's Paul saying what Luke is writing is scripture. That's in the 60s. So says uh, it show that Luke's gospel was received as authoritative scripture alongside the Old Testament. Again, the very latest would be by the turn of the century. So we have several things going on in the early part of the church, not later on. Now, again, they reference another piece of scripture, 2 Peter 3, 2. Now, Peter asked his audience to submit to, quote, the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Oh, that's the key part there. Peter places the testimony of the apostles right alongside the testimony of the Old Testament prophets. And first he refers to the Old Testament scripture, and then he talks about the teaching given through your apostles. It's like he's putting them in a time period. You know, there's the Old Testament prophecies, the Old Testament writers, and then there are the New Testament writers. And he talks to the holy prophets. Well, that would be a written text, so he seems to be talking about probably written texts in the apostles, too. It clearly lays what the authors say. It does lay a clear, critical foundation for the future emergence of the New Testament collection alongside the old. So these early Christians had a theological conviction that writings of the apostles were the next phase. God had his covenant. He revealed material to people in the Old Testament, and now he's doing it in the New Testament. And a number of Paul's epistles, here's their next point, number of Paul's epistles uh, have commands that they be read publicly when the church gathered. So Colossians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Corinthians 10, even the book of Revelation mentions that to suggest it's going to be read aloud. Now, why, why is that important? Well, remember, Paul is saying, please read these aloud. He's also said he has claims to apostolic authority. And the, many of the readers would understand that if you're reading something publicly within a synagogue context, that provides pretty good reasons that these letters are being viewed as the same category as other scripture that was being read during public worship times. So the practice of reading canonical books in worship is affirmed even later by the time of Justin Martyr in the middle of the second century. So now, listen to this. Here's a person writing in the second century, so maybe 140, 150, who says this, on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. So do you hear there again the memoirs of the apostles or the writing of the prophets? So they're put on the same level there. 
So we're talking probably the Gospels, memoirs of the Apostles. So the Gospels are being put on par with the Old Testament prophets. So what's going on here? The vast majority of books that were being read in early Christian worship services, they were the books that found their way to the New Testament canon. So that's why they became part of the canon. It wasn't that somebody picked them from some church council in the 300s or something. They were the books that were most already most commonly acknowledged and affirmed in this public reading. Okay, so summarize in this first part of uh, this chapter. So I'll make sure you've got this down. Does this make sense to you? References to Paul's letters being uh, called Scripture. A citation from the Gospel of Luke being called Scripture. Reference to the prophets from the Old Testament and the apostles being put on the same uh, basis. The reading of New Testament books that had apostolic authority and public uh, worship of the church. All of these things seem to lend themselves to saying really early canon being established way before Ehrman and Bauer say. What else? Well, then there are also uh, church fathers, apostolic fathers, that seem to suggest the same thing into the early 2nd century. Now, this is still way ahead of the time that Ehrman and Bauer are talking about. So, I'll go quickly over these because these are not really part of our uh, Bible today. But First Clement, okay, that circulated about A.D. 95. Supposed to be by a, a prominent church leader in Rome by the name of Clement. And he acknowledged the apostolic authority of Paul and talks about him as the blessed apostle. Okay, so Clement also makes reference to other epistles and 1 Corinthians. So he says that was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That seems to suggest part of a canon, doesn't it? Then there's the Didache. It's an early Christian manual of church practice. came out probably around 100. It references Matthew. So by the turn of the century, we're seeing evidence of a written canon that's coming out. It says the author assumes that the readers have access to this gospel of Matthew because he references it. Then there's Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch. He makes reference to multiple letters of Paul. He offers repeated um, and overt references all over the place to the authority of the apostles. And there are allusions in Ignatius to some of the Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, he quotes extensively from the New Testament. He called Ephesians Scripture. So again and again, we've got references, in this case, to Paul's letters as being on par with the Old Testament. And Polycarp referenced other epistles of Paul. He quoted from some of the Gospels. So we're seeing this again and again. By a very early point, just after the turn of the first century, so maybe 110, New Testament books were not only being called Scripture, but they are functioning as Scripture. So, uh, maybe one other person I'll cover here that he mentions Papias. He was a friend of Polycarp, probably had heard the Apostle John preach. And he talks about uh, Mark became Peter's interpreter, and Matthew collected the oracles in the Hebrew language. So it's clear that Papias took Mark's gospel as authoritative because it was connected with Peter. And he received Matthew's gospel on the same basis. So you've got all this information. So what's the conclusion of this chapter that they come to? That it's not true that the canon didn't emerge until the late 2nd century and that the New Testament books were not received 
as authoritative and scriptural documents until then. That's not, that's not happening. That's not true. The concept of canon that these two authors say not only existed way before then, but they were already received and being used as authoritative documents in the life of the church. They said toward the end of the chapter here, we have good historical reasons to think that the New Testament canon was well-established and probably a widespread reality by the turn of the first century, around 100. The early church understood God had given a new set of documents. Just like the Old Testament, here was the new set to talk about Jesus. That was the beginning of the canon. So we've got some reasons here uh, to believe that not only did Christians conceive of a New Testament canon before the late second century, but some of the specific books were already recognized before the church sat down and made any kind of public declaration about them. So I love another chapter here, and I'll come back to it, where they talk about what happened when the scribes got a hold of these. Did, you know, Were there errors? Uh, did uh, new ideas creep into the copying? That's another excellent chapter I want to get to. But I just want to remind you again, this book is called The Heresy of Orthodoxy by Kostenberger and Kruger. Excellent book. Thank you for joining me this time. Talk to you later.